This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor. Today, should we be screening kids for hearing loss in primary school? Inflammation and the clues in your genes that could help predict your depression risk. Looking for drivers of congenital heart disease in genes that aren't related to the heart. And... While COVID-19 case numbers and hospitalisations seem to be levelling off, at least in some parts of Australia, the emergence of the Omicron variant alongside the relaxing of restrictions has made this not quite the summer most of us were looking for. Health systems are straining. We hear a lot about learning to live with the virus, but what are the practicalities of this? One man with some suggestions is Brendan Crabb, who heads up the Burnett Institute. Welcome, Brendan. Thanks, Tegan. Great to be here. So, Brendan, at the end of last year, we were getting to pretty high levels of vaccination. The future was looking bright. Omicron has put us back into emergency mode. How do we get out of this? Well, it certainly has put us back into emergency mode. And um, unfortunately, we were slow to react to the emergence of of Omicron, which is a big reason why we're having, you know, the the desperate times that uh, that you've already referenced. Um, We may not have prevented all the cases, but slowing them down would have, would have made a lot of difference. But look, we are where we are. It's um, who knows how many people it has gone through in Australia at the moment, because of course it's overwhelmed our, our testing systems. Um, but it does look like case numbers are on the way down. Schools are about to open, so perhaps they'll go, go back up a, a, again a bit. Um, but, you know, I do expect this wave, like it has in other places, to end uh, relatively quickly, but leave you know, a really significant trail of devastation. So, you know, it, it, the first thing we have to do is is um, respond to that very real devastation. You mentioned the health system, of course, um, which is uh, which is really being hit hard right now. We need to acknowledge that and help them and support them in every way possible, but also the community more generally, so many businesses, so many individuals suffering. We, we do need to respond to this emergency and, and then regroup to decide what we're going to do next. What... Is there a way around just lurching back and forth from emergency mode to feeling like we're doing okay to back into emergencies again? Well, look, to a degree I think there is. We, Yes, I do. But we have to acknowledge, firstly, that we're still in a pandemic. You know, I know that there's lots of talk about um, maybe we're entering the final phase and, and, and so on and and that is, a you know, a discussion that is well worth having. But pretty clearly if if... You know, define if you define a pandemic as under unpredictable case spikes, you know, in the billions and and all the death and and disruption um, that follows that. Then it's pretty clear we're still in the midst of a pandemic. We need to acknowledge that, and then say, you know, how can we be ready for that uh, unpredictability? I think we need to recover from this um, desperate uh, Omicron outbreak. We then need to move into a COVID normal time. I like the phrase COVID normal. I've come come to like it. There is a there is a steady state, and and a set of policies that are more than vaccines for that time. Um, and then I think we need to have a third strategy, um, and one that I call being air raid ready. You know, we're very likely to see new variants of concern. Let's hope we don't see anything as bad as Delta and Omicron again, but it would be staggering if we don't see a, 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 next, a new variant of concern. And my reference at the beginning to not being ready, we never want to see again. We want our community to know that when this happens, our governments are going to respond. They're going to respond within days 
way before we have significant outbreak. And we're going to hold this at bay with those tools. So, you know, a COVID normal existence and an air raid readiness is what I would like to see for the future. Can we unpack that a bit? When you talk about being air raid ready, how do you keep that level of uh, agile response without either scaring people or panicking them or making them cynical or complacent? Look, it's a great question. I think the first thing is to be straight with them um, that, you know, Australia is in a reasonably good position. Yeah, we got ourselves uh, uh, remarkably well vaccinated before we faced a significant influx of virus. And and so that's great, um, uh, you know, and it's going to mean we suffer much less uh, death and disability than than other comparable Western countries that didn't do that. So, you know, we're in, a, we're in a strong position. But as Omicron has shown us, if we don't act nimbly um, and, and, you know, with a suite of interventions that aren't lockdown, I think I hope, very much hope the days of lockdown are behind us and they're not border closures. I hope those days are behind us. But there are things we can do. We've had a very vaccine-centric mindset. The brilliance of vaccines have blinded us to what else we can do. We haven't been ready with rapid antigen tests. We haven't been as advanced with um, our airborne readiness. You know, it's an airborne disease. We have a lot of trouble recognising that in Australia and therefore having souped-up mask policy, having great ventilation, filtration, air, air strategies. So I think in the vaccine plus sort of COVID normal time, these things are at a base level. And then you're communicating with, with um, the Australian population to say when there's a new variant, we're going to hit a button to say, here's your packages of masks, here's your packages of rapid antigen tests, um, here's our support packages for those who are going to suffer from, from uh, you know, having uh, limits on restaurants or whatever the strategy might be. The strategy specific isn't, doesn't matter now. I think the community can cope with that. I think they'll cope with that much better than being hammered with an unexpected um, wave that causes such devastation in the, in the community as the current one is. We've heard a lot about how Omicron is milder, but it's not, I mean, it's not mild universally, that we've seen deaths every day. Uh, what, whenever the virus is spreading, there is a risk of people dying from it. How do we start to have, it's, it seems very callous to have this conversation, but part of accepting a level of normal is to start talking about a, a death rate. This is something you and your colleagues have talked about. No, absolutely. I do think we need a conversation around deaths. It's not, it's not easy. Um, and you know, I, I have a very low. I can, I have a very low tolerance for, for deaths in the community, and, and especially when you have a disease that that targets more vulnerable people in your community. The ones we need to be extra special about protecting. That's my my personal view. You know. At the moment, we're going along at about 60 deaths a day. Um, you know, so that's a, that's a very large uh, number for, for Australia. The UK and the US have been going along at Australian equivalents of 40 to 80 deaths a day in their quiet times. Mm. Now, that, that you know, um, translates to sort of like 14,000 to 28,000 deaths a year. A bad flu year for Australia is 1,000 deaths. So, you know, my view is that's completely not tolerable for Australia, and I think most Australians would agree with that. So 40 deaths a year, around 14,000, uh, 40 deaths a day is around 14,000 a year. So what is the number? You know, how can we 
to say, well, if it's not going to be zero uh, deaths, what is it going to be? And can we dictate um, our policy uh, around that? We're getting very little discussion now that, um, you know, we're in the midst of this awful, awful circumstance where where deaths are hardly rating a mention um, and yet it's devastating so much of our community. Now, the Omicron wave will pass. I think what the UK and the US have shown us is that with policies like we have, we will have a baseline that's that's unacceptably high and and that should drive us to be more vaccine plus in our mindset, not just vaccine only for that COVID normal time. But, you know, maybe I'm not going to win that argument mm-hmm. that deaths aren't going to be the big motivator. I think there are other motivators. Uncertainty is one of them for business. Mm-hmm. You know, do you really want to be this uncertain about uh, what's going to happen next month or in three months' time or, or something like that? Uncertainty is a major, major uh, problem. And and we're talking about uncertainty that disrupts, you know, the whole nation. Yeah, lots so that of might que- be that might be the motivator. Lots of questions to ponder there, Brendan. Thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome, Tegan. Professor Brendan Crabb is director and CEO of the Burnett Institute. When my babies were a couple of days old, they were taken to a special room fitted with cool-looking headphones and sensors, and then they proceeded to sleep as a series of soft noises were played to them. It was part of my state's newborn hearing program. It's an initiative that helps with very early detection of hearing problems. But these problems only pick up on some of the hearing loss that can lead to issues with speech, language and learning down the track. In fact, more than one in 10 kids from disadvantaged backgrounds have hearing loss by the time they're in school, and that can potentially compound their disadvantage. So how can we improve? Kath McMahon from Macquarie University is an author on some recent papers looking into this. She joins us now. Hi, Kath. Hi, Tegan. How are you? Good. What happens when hearing loss isn't detected in young kids? It's difficult to detect hearing loss uh, in some cases in young kids, but the challenges are that they don't develop good listening skills, they don't develop um, their ability to learn how to attend to things, and of course that has a knock-on effect of them um, uh, developing good social skills, but also, as you mentioned, the speech and language delays, which can really affect their readiness to start school. So who's most at risk? Well, the kids that are most at risk are those from um, lower uh, socioeconomic environments. Um, and, you know, it really does uh, come down to the social determinants of health, um, good hygiene, good nutrition, um, overcrowding in houses. And in many cases, it's not just um, an issue of hearing loss, it's middle ear disease, which then will cause hearing loss of the problem. Right. So it's it's a complex thing. It's not just hearing. There's other health factors that are going into it. But your research is focusing mostly, mostly on the hearing side because of those knock-on effects that it has. If, if you're talking about kids who are at higher risk of, of disadvantage, they're probably less likely to have good access to medical services anyway. So how do you then go about adding in an, another intervention, which is a screening program, when they're already less likely to perhaps have access to good uh, medical interventions? 
Yeah, I think um, I think we need to first be really aware that um, hearing loss is a major public health problem, and the fact that um, you know the implications that it does have um, on kids, particularly around the school time, when when you really do see that exponential trajectory of learning that occurs. Um, you know, there are there are multiple ways that we could do it. I mean, a simple simple way is that when a child has a health check, that you could integrate an ear and hearing check, and if you did recognise um, hearing loss as being a major public health problem, then it would just be a no-brainer to have these ear and hearing checks within these complex health checks. You know, I look at uh, vision and um, we have really good programs for vision checks before uh, kids start school, but we just don't have the same things for hearing. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Either someone has is perhaps profoundly deaf, but then that um, spectrum of hearing loss isn't really considered as much in the realm of, of physical health as so many other things are. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely not binary. It's not uh, you either have a hearing loss or you don't. It's the grades of hearing loss that become important. And the reason I spoke about um, middle ear disease is because often uh, the hearing loss is fluctuating in nature. And so it's complicated to detect a problem until often the implications of the hearing loss um, become quite profound. So the speech and language um, is delayed. um, And then, you know, there really does need to be attention focused uh, to address that. But one of the things that we can do better, which um, I think is really important as well, is to have greater partnerships across education and health. Um, you know, uh, teachers, are the, um, they're ideally positioned in schools to be able to identify challenges that kids might have, you know, to identify some of these speech and language delays or even to identify those kids who are acting up in class because sometimes it's simply that they can't hear. It's not necessarily that they're naughty kids. Right. So in addition to, if it was part of that child health screening that you mentioned before, what, what other aspects would you like to see included in a national program for kids and hearing loss? Well, it's not just the hearing loss that we need to check. It really is the middle ears as well. But I think when you introduced the piece, you were talking about your own kids having gone through newborn hearing screening. But Mm. we know that about 50% of um, hearing loss uh, in school-aged kids is not detected by that. And so we really need better ways to be able to check them along that path, you know, from, from when they're very young all the way through to school because it is quite a quantum leap, you know, to only have checks from the time they're born to checks um, at school. So embedding, you know, there are multiple ways you could embed ear and hearing checks into regular health checks. Um, but really, it's if we can also identify those kids who are most at risk, and then there are some really interesting programs where um, they've combined ear and hearing checks with va- vaccination programs, which is a fantastic opportunity to be able to detect a, um, you know, to detect a problem at, at, at a regular health check or a regular um, time at which the child is um, coming into a, a health clinic. That's fantastic. Really briefly, are there any places that are doing this very well? Globally? Not really. Oh, in Australia. Not really. No, in Australia. Australia. <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> So what I wanted to mention is that there is a game-based app which has been um, beautifully designed. It's called Sound Scouts. Uh, And in fact, the federal government's put money into this program and it's available to school kids. But the rollout of the program hasn't been particularly good. And I think think we really need to raise awareness about what the challenge is. We do have Um, to leave it there, Kath, but Sound Scouts is the one that you're mentioning. Um, And I'll get people to maybe look it up on their their phones or um, on their search engines if they can. Kath, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tegan. Bye-bye.
Professor Kath McMahon is the head of the Department of Linguistics at Macquarie University. I'm Tegan Taylor and you're listening to RN's Health Report. Now, depression is a thorny condition to try to predict because there are so many factors that contribute to it. Some are external, stuff that happens to you, and some are internal, like your genetic predisposition. But new research has shown it's not just genetic markers that seem to influence your depression risk, but inflammation as well. Leah Davis is at Vanderbilt University in the United States, and she's been looking at combinations of genetic factors and inflammatory markers and how they interact with depression. I spoke with her earlier. Why did you look at white blood cells specifically as a marker for depression? We know that there are many factors that contribute to depression, and genetic risk is just one of those factors. But we can use that to help us identify other processes that are involved in the biology of how depression develops. And so the first part of this project was actually screening across about 315 different routine clinical biomarkers that are collected in a healthcare setting, and then testing whether those biomarkers were related to the genetic risk that people carry for depression. And that's actually what highlighted white blood cell count for us. And then the rest of the study went on to investigate the role of inflammatory markers like white blood cell count and its relationship with depression and just the genetic risk for depression. Was one of the reasons why you were looking in this area because of a link between inflammation and depression? Yeah. So once we saw that white blood cell count was associated with the genetic risk for depression, we became really sort of excited about that because there has been a longstanding hypothesis about the role of inflammation in depression. There's a lot of data to suggest that episodes of depression are related to increases in inflammatory markers. And there's a what's called the neuroinflammation hypothesis of depression, which suggests that inflammation in the brain is actually one of the causal factors that leads to depression. But one of the things that has been really difficult to get a handle on is whether depression leads to inflammation or inflammation leads to depression or both. And that was one of the things that we tried to address in this study. And whether that inflammation is genetically driven or if it's something that's happening because of an environmental reason, surely. Exactly. Yeah. So can we talk about biomarkers and what you did find in terms of what was relevant to depression and how pronounced the relevance was? Initially, we observed associations with a number of biomarkers, some inflammatory markers like white blood cell count, neutrophil count, which is a type of white blood cell. We also saw associations with some metabolic markers, so things like cholesterol, triglyceride levels, LDL. But after we accounted for the fact that some of the people in our study with high genetic risk for depression would also actually have a clinical manifestation of depression. We saw those metabolic markers actually decrease in their association. So we think that the relationship between the genetics that we observed and the metabolic markers was really more related to having depression, whereas the relationship between the inflammatory markers like white blood cell count and the genetic risk for depression was actually one of the contributors to developing depression. Okay, so that's an important distinction to make. What are the implications for diagnostics or treatment from what you found? I think it's important to get clear that the study does not 
have direct clinical recommendations for changes right now in diagnostics or in treatment. However, I think what it does is it really motivates further research into the role of anti-inflammatories in the treatment of depression and motivates further research into understanding the anti-inflammatory effect that existing antidepressants have. We really know very little about the relationship between antidepressant effects and inflammation. And I think that's something that our study motivates further research into. And as far as diagnostics, again, it's a study that indicates that understanding the kind of global panel of inflammatory biomarkers in the context of depression may be important, but not yet at a diagnostic stage. There haven't ever really been biomarkers identified for depression. So you're saying that you found one now? That's a tricky question because there actually are a number of biomarkers that are not like blood-based biomarkers, for example. There are things like neuroimaging differences or neurocognitive changes, but they are still considered to be biomarkers. We're never going to find the biomarker that is going to be 100% predictive of, you know, a depression episode. So I think that really what the field is moving towards is understanding how a panel of biomarkers, say neuroimaging, blood-based markers like these inflammatory markers, as well as understanding genetic risk, can come together to help us shorten that diagnostic odyssey for people. The key finding from this study is that we've used genetic data to help us understand that inflammation is both potentially a cause and a consequence of depression and that it forms a sort of feedback loop. Leah, thanks so much for joining us on The Health Report. Oh, my pleasure. Dr. Leah Davis from the Department of Medicine at Vanderbilt University in the United States. Staying with genetics, each year in Australia, a couple of thousand babies are born with congenital heart disease, but we don't fully understand the genetic causes making screening difficult. Now, a group of researchers from Monash University have discovered 35 new genes that are associated with congenital heart disease, and they're not necessarily heart-specific genes. Mirana Ramiallison was one of the leads on this study, and I spoke to her earlier. Thank you for having me. What are we missing when we only look at heart-specific genes? Oh, well, during the years of research on the heart, these genes are really good candidate to understand why we have genetic defects in the heart. But what missing is that there are other genes that are also very important for the heart, but they are not only expressed in the heart. They are not only present in the heart, but it's very hard to study them because they could have effect in other organs as well. So, so far, the research has been mainly concentrating on the low hanging fruit, if I may say, just mm-hmm. to look at the genes that are only in the heart. But what we've done is really to look at more genes that are actually expressing other tissues, including the heart, and try to understand why they're important for the heart as well. So how do you identify those non-heart genes that could be doing something in the heart? It was a computational trick. So what we've done is that when the gene is present in the heart, we ask, why is that gene actually present in the heart? And actually, genes have switches that turns them on and off. So what we're looking for were switches in our genome that could turn genes on in the heart. 
So it doesn't matter whether that gene has other switches that would turn itself on in other organs. What is really important for us is to look in the genome whether that gene has a switch that only turns it on in the heart. That's what we've been doing. We've realized that actually the genes that are really important for the heart have such switches, switches that are only present in the heart. And so we applied that to our whole genome to find more switches that switch on genes on in the heart. So your work has not been done in humans. You've been working with vinegar flies. It's hard yes. to think of something that's less like a human, but can you describe what this process is and why it's an important precursor to understanding better how humans work? So just to put things in context, the problem with congenital heart disease, which is disease that affects one in 100 babies you know, in the world and in Australia as well, is that we don't know which genes are actually causing this disease. 80% of the cases are unknown. And we know it runs in families, but still we don't know the genes that are involved. So that's the context. We really needed a rapid way to identify which genes would be involved in the disease. So to date, when you do a genetic screening on congenital heart disease, we only know about 100 genes that are involved in this disease. And that is based on years and decades of research. So with our new pipeline, we've predicted 1,300 of those with just just one computational run. So what we're trying to do is that, okay, now we have discovered all these genes, we need to rapidly test them. So how can we find an efficient method to rapidly, rapidly confirm that the genes that we've predicted with our computing model actually is involved in the formation of the heart and cause disease. So that's why we went to the fruit fly. This is really important basic research that we're doing at Monash because it provides of an, of an opportunity to really rapidly test genes that are functioning in the heart. And we may not know this, but you know, flies do have hearts too. And a lot of human disease have been actually tested in flies because we have the same organs. Of course, they're simpler versions, so that makes sense. But the building block of all of of our organs are also present in flies. And then the what's really fantastic about the flies is that we could rapidly test whether the genes we've predicted are actually important. So that's what we've done. And we've, we've proven that 70% of the genes that we predicted actually lead to abnormal hearts in the flies or already important for the fly. So what's the application of this research then? What do you do if you're identifying these genes? I'm assuming you would eventually use like a prenatal screening for it? Yeah, so this word of caution is still a long step until there because what we've done is really restrict the research space on which are the important genes. We have 20,000 genes in our genome, right? So we want it just to rapidly identify which ones would be important for the formation of the heart and therefore might be causing disease. So the next step for us is at Murdoch Children Research Institute is then to screen for patients who might not have a diagnosis before and see from a research perspective whether these genes actually had mutations in there as well that could be causing disease. And then there will be other steps then to include this in diagnosis panel. But what we've done is really to restrict the research space so we know exactly which genes to look at or to as novel cause of the disease. So if you were to fast forward some years, how do you hope this work ends up being used? As I said, we have 100 genes nowadays in screening panels, and that only covers 20% of the known genetic causes. Now we have 1,300 genes, and we hope that, you know, in a few years, then our diagnosis panel will have these 1,000 genes, and then we can rapidly give an answer to the families who want to know, you know, why the babies are born with these heart defects, and, you know, they don't have an answer to that today. It couldn't stop babies from being born with defects, though, could it? 
No, that's the research that we, it helps to understand why. And obviously, there's a lot of research done on preventing the disease, finding cures to avoid, you know, the defects to occur. So that's even further down the line. I see our bodies as cars, you know, we need to understand the, the parts of the car before, you know, we can find ways to fix what's wrong. So that's really what we do. It's really important to identify all of the components of the heart to really understand then what's going wrong with disease. Mirana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Associate Professor Mirana Ramiallison from Monash University's Australian Regenerative Medicine Institute and the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. That's it from RN's Health Report for this week. Dr Norman Swan and I will be reunited and back in your radio again next week. Catch you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.